I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 19 in the four verses, 38 through 42. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42. We're going to spend a good deal of our time here this evening. We will also look at Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, but we'll spend most of our time in John chapter 19. This is what's known in the tradition of the church as Holy Saturday. I was telling Greg earlier that I'm so excited to have a Saturday evening service this year because it, it made me sit down and ask myself why this day is significant. You see, most of us, what we do, unless you've grown up in a tradition of a more high church like Catholic Church or something like that, most of us, what we do is we celebrate usually Good Friday and we talk about how Jesus died on the cross. And then on Saturday, we know that he was in the grave. And on Sunday, the resurrection comes. But we sometimes are tempted to skip what happens on Saturday. And so as we look at the burial of Jesus this evening, what I want to invite you to do, because most of us are ordinary disciples of Jesus Christ. We are not the twelve, we are not the three, we are followers of Jesus, and we may be very, very special and dearly loved to Him, but in the church, we're not bishops, we're just ordinary followers of Jesus Christ. And so what I would invite you to do this evening is to not look at what the twelve did, as Jesus was buried, the followers of Jesus that were with him every day, but what did the ordinary, and in this case tonight, secret, more behind the scenes disciples do when he was in the grave? My prayer is that it would, as usual, both challenge us and encourage us to be lifted up in our faith in Jesus. So we're gonna look at these ordinary disciples and we're gonna look at the response that people have to death and burial. There are all kinds of different takes on death and what the afterlife looks like and what burial looks like. If you ask the Egyptians, the ancient Egyptians, one of the things that they would do is they would take coins and place them on the eyes of the deceased so that when they went to the river Styx, they would have the payment to get to the afterlife. For the Jews, it looked a little bit different, but I'm going to share with you uh, just a peculiar event that happened at a funeral in my family. I remember my grandma passing away, and uh, she's had an open casket funeral, and I'm there with my aunt and my uncle, and if they're watching this, listen, I'm going to call y'all weird, and I'm going to ask you in advance to forgive me, um, but it was weird. We're, we're at this funeral, and, and it just has always struck me that when someone dies, we have these open casket funerals, and you're like, you're looking at them one last time, and they've really been done up, and their makeup's on, and they're supposed to look their best, you know, before, they, before they're put into the ground. And it's this really awkward moment where we place jewelry and pictures and all these things in the casket. And, and me, growing up in a Christian home, I, I always ask myself, like, what are we doing that for? Like, it doesn't really, doesn't really change anything. And grandma really didn't care whether I put her favorite ring with her, whether my picture was there, how many flowers I put on her grave. It makes us feel better, and I don't want to knock that, but this particular funeral, something really weird happened. My aunt and uncle, and again, they may be watching this, and I'm just, I'm sorry, but they do this thing, and all of a sudden they say, hey, everybody, let's go up by the casket, and what I want you to do, come by the casket, we're going to take a picture. And I'm like, What? Ew. 
And next thing you know, like I'm being pulled by the ear over to the casket and they're getting the picture ready and, and they're having us all stand there as a family with grandma who is now in the, in the casket and we're, we're taking this picture and I'm sure my face looks something like. <laughs> but it was this weird thing that we do before burial and, and all throughout history you can look and there's all these, these strange things that we do when someone dies mostly to make us feel better. So we're going to look tonight at what did they do when Jesus died and was buried in the grave. The Bible tells us that the 12, the faithful followers of Jesus that were with him every day, the Bible tells us where they were as Jesus was being buried in John chapter 20 was hiding in a room in fear. See, they had followed Jesus openly and publicly, and everyone knew that they were disciples of Jesus, and now Jesus had been crucified as a, a betrayer, as someone that had committed treason, and so they're hiding in fear because they were associated with Jesus. And so we're not going to look at them tonight because there's not much to look at. They're, they're terror, terror, or terrified, and they're hiding. But the behind-the-scenes disciples did something different. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, the Bible says this. After these things, as Mr. Mark read for us, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So this guy followed Jesus. We know that he's very wealthy. We know that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a, a Jewish ruler, but he followed Jesus secretly because he was afraid of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. This in itself is a big deal. When someone was crucified on a cross, especially for treason, it was very unusual for the body to be allowed to be taken down and buried with honor. Usually what would happen, and, and most times no one really cared because these were usually hardened criminals, most of the time what would happen is the body would remain on the cross or they would take it off and it would just rot there. And so Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and gets permission. This alone tells us that Pilate had some type of respect for Jesus. He allowed Joseph of Arimathea to take, to take Jesus off of the cross, and it says he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come by night, came with Joseph. If you remember John chapter 3, Nicodemus is the guy who was a teacher in Judaism, and he's a very respected teacher, and so he comes by night to ask Jesus some questions. He comes by night because he's ashamed by his respect for Jesus. And this is where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And Nicodemus asks, well, how can I be born again? And, and in John chapter 3 is where we get the famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that guy, the same guy, comes with Joseph. And the Bible says he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about 75 pounds in weight. Basically 75 pounds of smell good stuff. 75 pounds of items to keep a dead body fresh. So they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen cloths and with sp the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
This matters because it helped us later to know that no other body was in the tomb, that there was no bones that could be mistaken for Jesus' bones, and there was no robbery that took place. It's a fresh, new tomb. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now in Matthew chapter 27, we get a few other things, a few other details about this burial. It says they wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. So John says there are strips Matthew says there's a clean shroud around it. The Catholic Church takes importance from this because they say there's the Shroud of Turin, which was the one solid piece that Jesus was wrapped in. They laid him in the new tomb, but then Matthew tells us they rolled a great stone at the entrance of the tomb and went away. Church, what I want you to see tonight is the disciples of Jesus Christ honoring the body of Christ. What I want you to know tonight is that while they were at work honoring his body, the Spirit was at work doing God's will. And what I'm going to offer to you tonight is that we as the church have a lesson to learn about spraying perfume on a dead body. You'll see what I mean. But notice that these disciples, these these closet disciples of Jesus, they go, they take the body, they honor it by covering with 75 pounds of spice and perfume. And then it's the Bible says it's the disciples that rolled the tomb, the stone over the tomb. Then Matthew tells us that the next day, After the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. So the enemies of Christ remembered Jesus said, after I die, three days later, I'm going to come to life. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Before we go to the work of Christ, I want you to notice a few things about the handling of the burial of Jesus. What they did was not wrong. There was nothing wrong with these disciples of Jesus honoring him. There was nothing wrong with them taking care of his body. There was nothing wrong with them protecting his body from intruders. There was nothing wrong with anything that they did. In fact, the things they were doing were good. They were publicly honoring Jesus, his life. They were caring for him in his death. They were honoring him in his burial. There's nothing necessarily bad about what they are doing. But what I want you to see is that behind the scenes, the spirit is at work and what it implies for us today as followers of Christ. And although there was nothing wrong with what the disciples were doing, if you pay attention, you'll see they're actually helping the enemies of Christ to accomplish their mission as well. Not intentionally, but it's the disciples that roll the stone in front of the tomb and the guards that seal it because they don't want Jesus to rise from the grave. They don't want the disciples to steal his body and what Jesus to have said, what he said to be true. So during this, what was God doing? In the grave, because that's what matters, right? Listen, I love you guys. I love the church. I love being a part of the church. I love being a leader in the church. I love serving the Lord with his body. But, but listen, if you're ever asking yourself what's more important than humans doing something or God doing something, always look at what God's doing. 
I, I love preaching. I love sharing the word with you, but, but I'm not him. And you should listen to him over me. So what is God doing as Jesus was being laid in the grave? As I teach this tonight, I want to be up front. This is going to grate against, and for some of you, really push your understanding of the afterlife. The Bible and tradition tells us in Ephesians 4, Paul says that Jesus descended under the earth. He descended under the earth and he held the captives captive. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, it tells us again that Jesus descended before he ascended. Hear what this means. As Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are burying the body and they are trying to make it smell nice and look nice and stay somewhat fresh and be protected, the Bible teaches us, the Apostles' Creed as well, that Jesus descended, and many translations in the Apostles' Creed say, descended into hell. Now, what he did there, there will always be some mystery. There will always be some confusion. But we know that one way or another, Jesus, in his death, descended under the earth, descended, and he proclaimed a message to those that were imprisoned. Now, that can be very uncomfortable to hear because as followers of Jesus, it's kind of confusing that he would go to hell at all. So I think the key to this is understanding the Jewish idea of the afterlife. You see, Second Temple Judaism especially, they had really worked this out. And what they believed was that when you died, your soul, your body would be in the grave waiting for the resurrection from the Messiah, of the Messiah. And your soul would go into this intermediate state where there were levels in what they called Sheol. Now in the Bible, the word for hell used in these, this talk of Jesus descending is the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. But the Jewish understanding of what happens after you die was that the righteous, those that followed the Lord and kept his commandments and, and were obedient to him, the righteous dead would be in this level, kind of this part of Sheol, where they would be awaiting the Messiah to come and resurrect not only their soul, but their physical body as well. Meanwhile, there was a part of this, this area of Sheol that was called Gehenna, and what it meant was the lake of fire. So you and I, our modern Christian understanding of hell is not Sheol, it's Gehenna, the Hebrew word Gehenna, a lake of fire. And so what the Jews believed that as you waited on the Messiah, those that were righteous in the Lord would be in the, this righteous dead area of Sheol, whereas those that were disobedient to the Lord would be cast into the lake of fire. They believe there was a third level where the fallen angels and the demons, those that followed Satan of, that had fallen out of heaven, were imprisoned in Gehenna. There's a separate area, they believed, where they were imprisoned. This may confuse you, but this is the context of the Bible teaching that Jesus, when his physical body was placed in the grave, his spiritual nature went descended under the earth into Sheol to do two things. 
He went to the righteous dead of Israel and he liberated them and decided, I have come, the Messiah has come, I have brought you to the general resurrection of the dead, that those that are righteous in the Lord would be raised from the dead and be taken to be with the Lord. But the Bible also says that Jesus held the captives captive. So in essence, the reason this is important, don't let it confuse you, but the reason this is important is it teaches us that Jesus didn't just take his physical body and place his sin upon it and die and take on a physical death. His soul descended so that death would not just be taken upon himself, but it would be defeated forevermore. And that those of Satan, the the fallen angels, those in prison, would be held captive so that Jesus would declare the victory permanently. Hear me, church, it makes a difference. It makes a difference. Ryan and I are going to be talking about the resurrection tomorrow, but what I want you to hear is while the disciples are treating this body and trying to make a dead corpse smell good, Jesus is defeating death. You see, the people of Israel had a hope that not only their body, but their soul would be resurrected. Both. The reason I say this pushes against our Christian understanding of the afterlife today is a lot of us believe that when you die, that's a wrap. You're in heaven. It's all done, over and done with. But the Bible teaches us, especially in Revelation, that Jesus is coming back again, and he's going to make all things new, and he's not only going to resurrect your soul, but your earthly body as well. And the reason that matters, we're going to talk about tomorrow, is it means God's not done with you yet. He's not done with his creation yet. He's making all things new. Ezekiel 37 is one of the greatest examples of the is- Israel's hope in the resurrection. I'm going to read this for you because I believe the Word of God will say it so much better than I will. But this gives an example of what Israel believed was going to happen after their body was laid in the grave. This is Ezekiel speaking, Ezekiel 37. If you want to turn there, feel free. But the Bible says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. So Ezekiel says, God took me, and he set me in the middle of a, of a valley of dead corpses. He set me in a valley of dry bones. They were dead, and they were gone, and he led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. Bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? So Ezekiel said, I see bones. They're dead. They've been dead a while. They're dry. And he asked me, son of man, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel says, prophesy, verse 4, Ezekiel says, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel says, I prophesied, verse 7, as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath 
in them. So Ezekiel says, I looked and I heard a rattling sound and these, these coarse, these dry bones began to come together and I heard the rattling and the flesh attached and they became animated and they were given flesh. But then he says, there was no breath yet in them. And then God said to me, Ezekiel says, verse nine, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded to me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Church Ezekiel is given this vision for the people of Israel, for God's chosen people. He says, I see the valley of their bones. I see that there's no life in them. I see that they are dead and they are gone. But God says, prophesy to them first that their bodies, their mortal physical bodies are, are going to be given flesh and reanimated and then speak the Holy Spirit. That word breath is often interpreted Holy Spirit. Speak the Holy Spirit into them. They will come back to life and then they will know once again, I am the Lord. I have done it. I have given them new life. This is what Israel is waiting for, the Messiah to come and give them life where there is death. Now, you may be hearing me this evening and asking, what in the world does this have to do with me? But the Lord laid something on my heart this evening, this week, this season. And what he said to me, what I, what I felt him laying on my heart is this. I believe that the church today too often it's spending a great deal of time and resources and energy spraying perfume on a dead corpse. And I'm here to tell you this evening that if Jesus had remained in that grave, then it's all well and good. That's plenty to do. You should honor him. He died for as a martyr. He was a hero. He was noble. Spray the perfume. Put the spices. Do all you want. But I'm here to tell you that tomorrow morning, Sunday, is coming. The Lord is alive, and it's time to stop being in maintenance mode. We are not called to spray perfume on a corpse. Hear me, church. What they did was not wrong. You can be out there doing good things. You can be out there doing things that help others. You can be out there doing things that, that look good and, and are good in a sense. But if you are doing ministry or being the body of Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit, you are doing work in vain. 
The Spirit is always active, even in the valley of dry bones. Hear this. God did not say to Ezekiel, I want you to go to that valley of dry bones. I want you to maintain them. Make sure they're in good condition. Make sure that they look good. Make sure that they smell good. Make sure when people come by, they find what they see appealing. Give them a, a, an ossuary. Give them a, a sanctuary. Give them a place in the, in the cemetery that looks good. Give them a nice tombstone. That's not what God said. He said, Ezekiel, I want you to speak life where there is death. That is what the church is called to do today. But hear this as well. It is possible for you to do things as the church that is good. They seem good. Social justice is a great example. God calls us to bring justice to this world. But if you're doing it without Christ, you can actually do more harm than good. Think about it. The disciples had no idea that by rolling that tomb in front of the, the grave that they were actually helping the Roman soldiers to make sure that their goal was fulfilled. And they had no idea. How often today are we just trying to do good things to make the church look good or seem good, to make it palatable to the world outside, to, to grow and have more people come into our worship services or to make people like us more, to be a, a greater presence in our community, but we're doing good things, but it has nothing to do with God's will. And sometimes it's even going against his will. It is the equivalent of spraying perfume on a corpse. It just doesn't make sense. As Ryan and I are going to preach tomorrow, the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. Church, I want to encourage you tonight to know that the message didn't end on Saturday. Sometimes you're going to be those disciples that are hiding somewhere in fear that you're terrified because you feel like it's all a wrap and that you've been defeated. Sometimes you're going to be Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea where you're just doing good things for good things' sake. But in those moments, you're not living in the power of the resurrection. Even when it seemed like defeat and death and the end of all things, even then, God was at work holding captive evil and setting those in bondage free. Nothing has changed today. God is still at work, even in your darkest hour, in your worst moment, in seasons where you feel like it's just not going to end and all hope is lost. God is still in the business of cap holding captive evil and setting those in bondage free. He's still in the business of redeeming his people. He's still in the business of bringing resurrection and life. That is the message we should proclaim as the body of Christ. And I just want to tell you tonight, like Ezekiel, I hear a rattle. I hear a rattle. Even now, the Saturday evening as we wait on the resurrection Sunday, even now in the midst of pandemics and racial injustice and anything else you can think of that brings you down, even in the midst of all of that, I hear a rattle. 
I hear a rattle of dry bones coming to life. I hear the breath of God breathing on those who are slain that they may live. I hear the Lord saying, Behold, I will open your graves, O my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live, says the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Church, I would stake my life on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is more valuable than anything else you will ever hear. And I believe at the core of my being that what God says, He means, and that He will do it. That He has offered you life and life eternal, life abundant, and life that is free, and that His Spirit is at work even now. I want to encourage you. Listen, Christ doesn't want to be a priority in your life. He wants to be preeminent. And if He was just a hero, if He was just a man that died by crucifixion, to be a hero, to be a prophet, to be a teacher, just to be a good man, if he remained in that grave, I would tell you that it is enough just to give him lip service and to maintain his church. But that is not who he is. He is what Israel awaited. He is what we await now. And he is coming back again. And by the power of his spirit, all things will be made new. Evil will run in terror and be defeated. There is victory in Jesus this evening. Do you know it? Do you know it? Do you live it? Do you know it at the core of your being? Is it what's most important in your life? I pray it so. The Lord's placed in my heart tonight as we close in prayer. As we worship together. I believe that God placed me on this earth to preach. It's a gift that I believe He's given me. While it takes work, it is somewhat natural. But God has placed it on my heart tonight not to use eloquent words or illustrations or to entertain you or to tickle your ears but to simply say, you, short of Jesus Christ, are trapped in your sin, and there is no other way out. And God, in His infinite love for you, the God who made you, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. And in His death, sin and death, were defeated forevermore. And in His resurrection, it is proven. And that by placing your faith, Greek word is pisteia, it's different than intellectual or emotional faith. It means giving your life to Him. You are saved. If you accept that tonight, you will, not maybe, not perhaps, not there's a chance, you will enter into eternal life through Jesus Christ.
It's your decision. It's your call. But I've laid it out for you. Lord, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit convict our hearts tonight. I pray that if there's one person in here tonight or online that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would choose tonight to claim you as their own. God, we don't believe there's anything magical or special about the prayer that I'm going to invite. It's about faith. So as I invite anyone online or in the room to pray this with me, I pray that they would be convicted to share. They've made that decision so they can be plugged in to grow in their faith. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give those that don't know you the courage right now, the boldness, the clarity to pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I am a sinner in need of salvation. I've tried every other way. There is no other way. Place my faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for my sin and who rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forevermore. I place my faith in Him as my Lord, my Savior, and my Redeemer. And I accept eternal life through Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray over the person who just prayed that prayer. God, I pray that they would know that they can have assurance of their salvation, that you are coming back again. I pray that they would have a hunger and a thirst for your word. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin, Lord God, to grow closer to you, to be made more like Christ each and every day. I pray that for each of us in the room tonight. God, that we would not be in maintenance mode, but God, that we would be obedient to your Holy Spirit to grow your church, to grow closer to you, to share the good news in resurrection power. Heavenly Father, as we play this next song, Lord God, I pray that everyone here tonight would know that the altar is open. Heavenly Father, that they can come to you and approach you as children of God because of your sacrifice. We love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen.